Welcome to Thoroughly Wrong, and now your hosts, Francisco and Rob. Take it away, guys. All right, good evening, and welcome to this very important fourth episode of the Thoroughly Wrong Project. Today we have a very special guest, a professor of political science, philosophy, and peace studies from Kennesaw State University, Dr. Wim Lavin. All right, um... Welcome to the show, Wim. Uh, I'd like to start this this uh, discussion with a question to you. Ever since the days of like Roman rule, there there are dozens and dozens of documented cases of nonviolent protests that have brought about significant change. And you know, of course, the noted ones, uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, as the most famous. But you know, even when these people were faced with dogs, water hoses, beatings, arrests, it, it didn't matter. They face their oppressors with nonviolence. And, you know, after a while, if you continue to attack a nonviolent entity, you look pretty stupid punching a a person who won't punch you back. So my question to you is, am I mistaken or is is Black Lives Matter a nonviolent or a militant movement? And where do they fall in that category to you? Um, So. Let me let me make the caveat of saying that not all participants in Black Lives Matter are the same. Of course. Um, There are some isolated incidents where violence has been employed. And in some cases, it seems to have been done in a provocative matter. In some cases, it seems to have been done in a defensive matter. Um. But those are the isolated cases. And actually, we have some pretty strong empirical evidence right now that shows over the summer, 93% of the Black Lives Matter protests were nonviolent. So that's an overwhelming majority. Um, sure. The more remarkable part, just about the 7% where there was violence, is that violence was not always precipitated by the uh, Black Lives Matter individuals. And the overwhelming amount of property damage during these Black Lives Matter protests this last summer has been actually been caused by white supremacist, alt-right, and uh, militia groups who are act- absolutely opposed to Black Lives Matter. Um, but it also shows that the use of violence to kind of uh, prevent them from getting their message out is failing as well. Okay, yeah, I noticed that when a whenever a Black Lives Matter sign goes up, a Trump sign or some other sign, go, all lives matter. It seems all, like uh, my partner, Francisco, calls it retaliatory. And it, it just seems like the, the movement is being misinterpreted. And I, I was not aware of the statistics that you, you gave, but the movement is being misinterpreted on a large scale as a, a violent organization. Um, I don't even know that it's being misinterpreted in all, on a large scale. I know some people are att- attempting to distort their message intentionally um, by, you know, like saying that they're violent. It gives some sort of basis for ignoring them. Um, right. But, but I, think, I think that at this point, it's actually ubiquitously clear that it's a, it's a movement that is gaining strength because, quite frankly, Nothing is being done to satisfy the demands of equality, which is supposed to be one of the foundational principles in this country. Right. Right. Well, I see. 
this is hard. This is hard for, for me to discuss. I live in a very um, conservative culture, you know, Bakersfield. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard for me to discuss. I, I, I'm con- constantly being misinterpreted. And when I say that I, I be, I get attacked. I, I get a lot of verbal attacks because I, I want to say like you, yes, there are, there are within the organization and there have been within the movement some violence, but it's not prevalent. You know, I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know the, the statistics, but most people that I talk to in a, in a conservative, from a conservative bent, they just dismiss the movement. And I, I wonder how can I, and how can we as a culture accept this movement for what it is? It's, it's not, it's about equality. They don't want more. They just want what we have, what everyone should have, which is peace. Well, I think that, I mean, one, I'll, I'll just admit right up front. Um, Bakersfield is the place where I was told I was a race trade trader just for having brown and black skin friends in high school and junior high. Um, Bakersfield's the place where uh, the defense of all of the racist policies, and this predates, you know, the Trump administration or whatever, right. are, are 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 supported and supported in like very derogatory ways. Um, so, so the idea that that you're struggling is is actually just a matter of, you know, the design in many senses that Bakersfield is actually prided itself on, um, you know, incidents of white supremacy, incidents of racism. Um, but but it's never been divided in, in many ways from some of the other, like, common things. Like, like before you got to Bakersfield, you were very aware, I think, uh, of, like, the class, the classism of, you know, the rich versus the poor. And right. so all of that gets mixed into it, right? Yeah, I came from I came from a culture, you know where I came from. Yeah. I came from from Appalachia. So me coming from Appalachia into Bakersfield, there was an awakening for me here. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 But but the other thing is is that Bakersfield and Kern County are more noteworthy um for having actually some of the most extreme violence from law enforcement in this oh, country yeah. and actually it's Kern Kern County's like internationally famous for being the most lethal uh, police program in a major city on the planet um, or in a, in a metropolitan area because Kern is, is broader than that. But like how that metastasizes, how you get a society where they say, despite the evidence that shows that these types of police tactics have no impacts on reducing crime, um, have negative impacts on recidivism, have like they're demonstrably bad for the protection of constitutional rights, but the support of that is just absolutely insane. So you're looking at the insanity of people who refuse to actually trust that the sky is blue when it comes to like clear science that says these are bad police behaviors, just categorically. Right. And then you have those people and they're like, I back the badge, right? I back the blue, like I stand on the blue line or whatever. 
So they don't even they don't even get what this idea of police brutality is, which is the first part of the epidemic, let alone understand that it's disproportionately targeting minority populations, which is the second part of the epidemic. So like you're just in the worst spot for addressing it. Um, like there's no there's no if, ands, or buts about it, you know, like Donna Youngblood and the Bakersfield Police Department categorically refused to take the suggestions of the Department of Justice in order to protect the constitutional rights of citizens in the way police officers do their jobs. And the saddest part about that is this isn't even about the police officers. This is about bad protocol and bad policy. The policies themselves, right? You could have a non-racist police officer in Bakersfield who, if he does what he's supposed to do, will end up breaking the law, like the constitutional law in terms of the service of his job and violating the rights of individuals. It's insane. Like, it's truly crazy. That leads to that leads to what we have here today, which is uh, in 2016, 53% of this county supported Donald Trump. And then that, it just keeps carrying and keeps carrying. And there has to be a way to turn this around. I mean, leaving is not something that I want to do. I like it here. My family is here. My kids are here. And I understand I would like to escape this, but it seems to put some sort of burden on me to change the to change the way people are here. Well, I mean, I sympathize. Like, I didn't necessarily leave to escape. I left for opportunity, you know, like right. go to grad school and then to get a PhD. And now, you know, I just want to teach. And if there's ever a teaching job in Bakersfield for me, like, it's, it's definitely possible that I would go back. But the other part of it is, is that that's the expression of privilege that, like, I'm not saying this about you, but about the people who want to leave Bakersfield, it's like people who have the means to, to, to get out sometimes do, but it's the, it's the people who have the least means that frequently have no choice but to stick it out in the oppressive conditions. Right. But you ask the more important question, which there are clear-cut things that you or anybody else can do and and one of the simplest things is actually what you're doing right now. Like, despite the fact that we pretty much agree on stuff, you're having the dialogue, you're having the conversation. And like the best way to get to people's hearts and minds is just by talking to them, but even more importantly, by listening to them. Um, I can't remember his name right now, but you know, there's there's an African American man who's gotten a large number of individuals to leave the KKK and other white supremacist organizations. And he says his secret is he listens to people until they're interested in finding out about him. Like he just spends time with these guys and eventually they come around to like not being able to ignore his humanity. Isn't that some, isn't that the premise of nonviolence? You just keep, listening more or less until someone starts to starts to ask you questions. What are you doing, man? You know? So I, I get it. I, 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 and I didn't say you, I, I wanted to uh, back up a little bit and I wasn't saying you left to escape here. I wasn't saying that at no, all. No. I, I, I was just, what I was inferring is so many people tell me, well, if you don't like it here, you know where the road out is. 
Well, that no, wait a second. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a really sad kind of way that if you don't like it, leave or it's my way or it's the highway gets applied into conflicts, which absolutely cuts off the opportunity for understanding. And by extension, there's absolutely no opportunity for problem solving. I mean, clear, clearly there are problems, but the only way to figure out how to deal with them is when sides can work out like what their narratives are, what their stories are. You know, like the biggest challenge that you'll get like in Oildale is that you'll have people say like uh, people talk about white privilege, but, you know, they're like, I'm down on my luck here. Like, what privilege are you talking about? I have. Right. So right. being white doesn't mean that you can't have hard times. It just means that the hard times you're having aren't by virtue of the pigment in your skin. Right. Totally. And, and it's and it's very hard. Right. It's very hard to talk to somebody who's down on their luck about the privilege that they're not feeling like or experiencing in their daily life right bakersfield's like it's got its own history you know like dates back to the dust dust bowl and people had hard right. times and that's what got them to bakersfield right, right. and bakersfield they brought that Can... re reflects like the, the story of struggles so so there is an interesting tension there you know right I, I know between 1880 and 1920, uh, the history of Bakersfield and Los Angeles were kind of neck and neck. And then Los Angeles took over, took off with this growth spurt. And then the Dust Bowl came and we got a lot of people from the Midwest. And not only did they bring that hard, hard working and, and the farming and they brought all that, they also brought that conservative bent with them. And that's been here since the Dust Bowl. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting part of the, the, the struggle. I mean, I remember when we were in classes together and I was working out in the oil fields and stuff. I couldn't believe, right? I couldn't believe the way that some of my colleagues out there would champion for these guys who do nothing but like basically poo on them in, in all actuality, right? I mean, yeah. that was back when we had like Bill Thomas and stuff. Like Kevin McCarthy is actually just worthless. He's done nothing. <laughs> when people talk about politics, I'm like, I'd like to talk about this guy who's who's apparently powerful in the GOP and has passed zero legislation as a congressman for you know his constituents. Right. Like like he had a bill that he offered that went places, but it was about like privatizing outer space. <laughs> and if there's a person that you know, like liter legitimately, who's going to benefit from from that legislation, I want to hear about it. But it's like, it's seriously, it's about how do you make money in outer space? And that helps no one. But like, you talk about water in the Valley, like that's, that's never been done by a, a Republican. It's always the Valley Democrats that are protecting those jobs, right? Yeah, like, yeah true. So, wanted, true. yeah. I wanted to go back a little bit. Um, earlier when we were talking about, uh, you know, the issue of, of Black Lives Matter and that whole um, situation. I feel like one of the biggest problems we have with that problem is a lot of people just refuse to acknowledge that, you know, there's systemic racism in the system at all. Uh, you know, I've heard people like Larry Elder or like Ben Shapiro talk and they just completely denounce, you know, they basically 
they say there's no proof of systemic racism, so therefore it doesn't exist. You know, there's no laws that basically say, you know, that, you know, verbatim are kind of like, you know, screwing people of color over. So to them, it's not an issue. It's more of a, like a cultural issue, you know? And it just, it's pretty upsetting because that's that's the first like step into solving an issue is acknowledging that it's there in the first place. Yeah, um, I mean, acknowledgement is really important. I might, I might actually push back against the part where um, we used to have Jim Crow laws that were very explicitly like uh, yeah. r- racist and so forth, but we still have a lot of stuff on the books which performs the same way, um, and so that's that's part of the challenges that like people need to actually be educated about what's going on, right? So that. So that they understand that, like the laws that are in place, are impacting people in disproportionate ways. Um, you know, like it's not the law itself, but it's the law in extension that creates, like, the Flint water crisis, which impacts poor people in poor communities, but also specifically uh, highly African American populations, right? And it's 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 the noted it's the noted practice of people not taking the concerns of certain populations as seriously. It's it's the the doctors who say like they did an autopsy and then they saw the scar tissue in a woman's abdomen and they realized that like the decades of abdominal pain that she was complaining about like were actually real. But but I think the part where both of you have now asked questions about like the mindset. If you think about like the people who were saying Donald Trump's not racist, prove it. And then you go back to like these lawsuits from the seventies, right? Like where he literally went out of his way to not rent, you know, apartments, his business made sure to not house African-American populations and, and they got penalized for it. And then it happened again, because even after they got in trouble for it, they were like, we just don't want to do it. So so we have laws, but we know that they're not being enforced. And it doesn't even matter what agencies are pushed forward to say, like, we have these protections. So, I mean, so at, at the one time, you're right. Like, we have changed laws to try to get to the 20, you know, to the, to the 21st century. And at the same time, like we're not actually following through on the things that clearly impact populations differently. May may I ask, Wim, why why do you think we're not following through? What is the problem here? Well, um, in some cases, it's not politically expedient, right? If people admit to a problem, then that means that somehow are, they become responsible for getting to it. And it's harder to come up with solutions than it is to deny them the existence of the problems. Um, part of it's that I think it's actually ingrained in our culture. Um, we have a lot of like racist behavior and racist thinking that has to be unlearned. And it takes a lot of work to become anti-racist. I mean, like when I left Bakersfield, I thought I was a pretty good guy. I'd been preaching nonviolence for like three or five years. Um, and I got to another city and I, I realized how sexist, racist and homophobic I was. And I never meant to be that way. Right. But it, right. it, 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 it had become a part of me just like I absorbed it 
you know, the toxicity just from, from being there. So it took a lot of work. It took a lot of work to figure out that actually the just joking wasn't cool. Like racist jokes are racism, all of that stuff, right? Like I had a childhood where there were so many different things that I was saying, like as expressions, like pejorative racial slurs yeah, that I just I thought like, oh, it's no big deal because it had been normalized. So we have to we have to actually identify all of these different things and say like this is not how we establish equality right we have to we have to unlearn it and unlearning things is painful right because you lose parts of your identity you have to admit maybe you weren't as good a person as you thought you were all that stuff right like and we and we identify it in others before we identify it in ourselves right but like i said i had to figure out how to come to terms with I said racist jokes to fit in in high school. Like there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I did that. Like, how do I make up for, right? How do I atone for, um, and, and just like be the better person. But so we, so we get, we get Kevin McCarthy's who will like just stand by Trump's side when Trump calls, you know, like the people coming across the border from Mexico animals and, and just be like, yeah, he's absolutely right. And then their, their supporters are like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying that the, the criminals and so forth are, 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 are monsters. But right, but that's not what you're saying. The transcript, that's not actually what was said, and that's not actually what was defended, right? So people, people are not actually being honest about all of the, uh, all of the messages that are coming out. What about let – me, let me back up just one second here. Sure. What about – and I, I even hate, I hate to ask this because I know I'm getting ready to get schooled. Okay, <laughs> what about parody? What about it? Like we're 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 so far from having that in our context. Like, what can you say about it? Like, I mean, of course, of course, if I'm going to be nonviolent, I'm going to hope that others are nonviolent, and if I'm going to be motivated by the the causes of justice. That means I need to be interested in all justice. But the fact of the matter is I do prioritize things. I prioritize things by seeing like which people look like they're in the, like the most significant need. I look at things that like seeing like what steps people are taking are causing the most harm and likely to create the most harm. I mean, look, the, the thing about it is, is that there's a lot of people who need a lot of help. One of the clearest pathways to improve conditions in this country is to take down some of the, the structural violence and the systemic violence and the cultural violence that's targeted against minority populations. I also think that it would be great if we start, stop like criminalizing poverty in this country. I think it would be great if we did a lot more for mental health. I think that there would be all sorts of things that we should do. I write about it, like I teach about it, but... You know, right now, right now is a great time to be a Black Lives Matter protester um, because everybody is fired up about it. Like we're watching we're watching videos taking place, you know, that show the, the pure innocence and the pure brutality that's being directed at certain populations. Right. It reminds me so much of 1991 and sitting on the couch as a 13 year old and seeing Rodney King get beaten 
and, you know, like asking my father questions and trying to make sense of it and going to school and everybody was talking about it. And everybody knew from that video that there was absolutely no justification for what they saw happening. And so we're, we're back at that point again. But we can be more strategic and systematic and thoughtful and forceful and just not back down to the deba- demand that this, this violence cannot be tolerated. This violence cannot be tolerated. Ch- change is, is not a, like an aspirational goal at this point. Like we have to see something. We have to see something change. I, I find it fascinating. I, I hope I can um, get this out. I find it fascinating that we create the culture, we drive people into poverty, we corral them, and then we go in, and when they retaliate against us, we shoot them, and that's okay. I, I don't, I don't, I see um, the the George Floyd and the Breonna Taylors and the Jacob Blakes, you know, and all. And they're all not the same. I, I get that. I, I I have a really hard time with what Charles Barkley said about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are different entities. I see what he's trying to say, but I also see we created the culture that these people live in. And when they retaliate against us, then it, it's somehow they're all their fault because they're violent. Well, they've been met with violence their entire life. They've been ostracized their entire life. They've been pushed into the margins their entire life. And now as they begin to fight back, we blame them. I find that abhorrent. Yeah. You know, I I would suggest, and you've probably already seen it, but for anybody who listens to this, Dave Chappelle's uh, segment 846 goes through a lot of depth in the in the story about like the police officer in Los Angeles who spoke up against the, the the brutality that he witnessed from a partner and then he got reprimanded for it and he ends up like actually starting a like a, a one person war against the LAPD where you know like he gets killed the cabin that he, he flees to gets burned down and i'm not trying to justify that violence at all but like there is an absolute truth that people like do snap and they do target the people that they see as being like responsible for their victimization. Right. But I would say that that it's a lot, a lot more popular to rally behind the clear cut cases. Like Breonna Taylor was asleep in her own bed when she was murdered by police, when they had the person that they were looking for in custody. Right. Like the error on top of error on top of there's absolutely no justification for what happened to her Um, versus, you know, some other people have actually committed crimes and it makes it a lot harder for people to really make sense of like that the police officers made a mistake or that it shouldn't have happened that way. I mean, the sad truth is the use of force is disproportionate, but. But I do think that if there's any example that's clear about the need for change, then law enforcement killing unarmed people who are either accused of nonviolent crimes or who haven't even been accused of crimes at all. Right. Like 
you know, you just, we can't have a law, uh, law enforcement where they can't tell the difference between an iPhone and a gun. And so they shoot somebody who's unarmed just because they're like, apparently the only standard in some context is that the police officer says that they feared for their own safety. And, and that's just not, that's not acceptable. Not that I want police officers to be in danger, but like we have to have a standard that requires at least some objective truth about threat or harm before somebody's life could be taken. Police officer training is um, a joke. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to um, ask you something, one real quick. Uh, you you were talking earlier about how we need to, you know, right now is the moment to not to keep pushing, you know, keep fighting for, you know, for equality and all these things. What do you have any like specific ideas, you know, whether society wise or, you know, policy wise that we can have, you know, to better that movement or, you know, to fix some of those some of those problems that we have? Well, I mean, so there's the local Right. Like I can tell you a, a dozen recommendations that would immediately improve public safety in Bakersfield and Kern County. Like all the BPD has to do is accept the Department of Justice's recommendations against things like shooting at moving vehicles since bullets are notoriously bad at stopping cars. <laughs> like there are I mean, there's just dozens of things like that that are well known, well understood by law enforcement and refused in certain jurisdictions. What we have to do is have things like a mandatory time off period. And if it's seven days or 14 days, I don't really care. Just do what the psychologists say, but for every officer involved shooting and stop having it where police officers feel like they have to say, I'm okay, I'm safe because they're afraid of being stigmatized by like the other officers, but we, we see things like this has happened in Bakersfield guy gets involved in a shooting. Now he's trigger happy because, you know, like it's a psychologically traumatic event and now he's back out. And in less than a month, he shoots somebody else. Right. Yeah. And, and so, so if we just start getting jurisdictions, like, and it's knowledge, right. We can educate the public about like, this is bad. This is bad policy and it threatens public safety. Well, we won't do this, but like local level is harder to engage with on a larger movement like Black Lives Matter. But if we wanted to focus on the national movement, right, like we can see we can see that millions of people have gone to the streets, have stayed in the streets and they're doing it. Um, So we show our support. We put up our signs. But what we really have to do is figure out, like, what what are our pressure points? Where's our leverage? Who are the people that really need to get the message? And a big part of this is that we're going to have to actually start getting the like the serious offenders voted out. Like we won't get the change until until the other legislators actually see like supporting racist behavior will get your ass booted and it'll push people. Right. Yeah. Conversely, what we're seeing is that lawmakers like Mitt Romney, who are actually seeing seemingly like sticking up for moral causes are threatened, are threatened by their party, right? So, so then they get whipped into shape, which ends up not necessarily being good for progress. Right. But, you know, you, you write a letter to the editor. You have conversations with your neighbors. Like, I mean, part of the deal here is, and I know we're, 
over time at this point, but like the Montgomery bus boycott was over 365 days. I think it was 381 days, if I remember correctly. That's 381 days of inconvenience where people had to schedule carpools and make all the stuff work just so they could have their seat on the bus, right? So sometimes it takes lots of work and sacrifice and struggle for the seemingly small changes, right? So, I mean, like right now, it seems like it's a long time because, you know, it's over 100 days of people like out in the streets, but there has to be strategic. um, There has to be... uh, sacrifice that has to be these things in order for it to really get to the change. And we might have to think about actually stepping it up. I mean, at some point in all of this with the increased political violence and so forth, people might have to be willing to engage in something like a general strike or something. Clearly, clearly the the protest that's taking place has been something that the, those in power have been able to ignore. So elevate Elevate the concern without elevating the violence. There, there's a percentage of people on, because uh, I've heard them say before on the BLM side, and they may not necessarily be, you know, um, affiliated with BLM, but they're on, you know, the equality side that they want equality that are saying, you know, just burn the whole system down. And they're calling for, you know, for riots and like looting and all these things. Uh, what do you say to them? Well, it's a mistake. I mean, I don't want to call somebody out. People make mistakes all the time. But the science on this is really clear. The science on nonviolence is much better than people give it credit for. And you're much more likely to achieve the outcome that you desire through nonviolent resistance than you are for violent resistance. I mean, hey, look, I get it. When people are angry, like breaking something, destroying something, punching someone or whatever can be like, it can feel good to have that angry retributive response. But in the long run, like we've never bombed people into loving us. We've never shot people into thinking that we had the right idea. Like we're just not going to get there that way. Right. I mean, like there's just no if, ands or buts about it. When we start using violent behavior, we change the struggle and when we change that struggle, when we change that narrative, then we start letting those people who would be sympathetic to our struggle um, see, see and experience themselves as being the victims. Once somebody changes that, you know, turns the table, it's really hard to get through to them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I can understand it. I can understand the use of violence. I can understand people who feel like self-defense. I can understand people who say like, look, I don't want to use violence, but these proud boys are coming to my city. Like I know people up in Portland who have been assaulted by these white supremacists and I get it. But the fact of the matter is Martin Luther King Jr. used nonviolence, but he knew that they were taking the violence on themselves. The only thing that changed middle America was when they saw innocent people being harmed. If people had fought back, then the middle America, you know, average person was going to think like, you see, that justified it. The police had to use force because. So you right. just can't do it. Unfortunately, it's it's an irregular logic that gets applied. Whatever you do, even in self-defense, will be used as the justification for the violence that precipitated it. 
perfect. If you're, if you're not committed to nonviolent struggle, just sit this one out. If you haven't got the training to know how to like, like not get provoked to give them what they're looking for to undermine the movement, just sit this one out. And if you're going to use violence, don't say that you're using it for a cause that's doing everything it can to make sure that everybody knows that's not the way that they're doing it. That's, I guess that's what I'd say to those people, but I'm not the spokesperson for BLM. Right. And yeah, they're making their expressions pretty clear. Well, Wim, I, I can't say uh, how much I appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. Should definitely have, have you on again. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm always available. Maybe after November 3rd, depending on what happens. Yeah, I've I've already been like uh, I'll be doing some some uh, some dialogues on November fourth already, and it's it's crazy to think, but we probably won't have a president yet. Oh, or, I know. We won't have results for the election yet. Um, That's true. But yeah, like the the country is hurting, and uh, I'll, I'm here for you. I'm happy to talk about the stuff that I've been studying for the last twenty years. So we appreciate like said, it, man. Like you said earlier, dialogues probably one of the most important things you can have right now. Yeah. Yeah, we just have to talk to each other. I mean, and the thing about it is, I mean, let me underscore it. Like, even with my conservative friends, even with my friends, and I have a few who actually voted for Trump, we still have more in common than we have like that divides us over this political stuff. Like as long as we can remember that we have more in common than that what's dividing us, like we'll be all right. When we start forgetting, when we start forgetting like that, you know, we're not in this together and we don't have a shared humanity, that's when it's gonna get really ugly. And I mean, like some people have already gotten there, but we need to we need to pull people back and just say, hey, look, we've known each other for a long time, or maybe we haven't known each other for a long time, but let's get to know each other and you know, like. We can we can surprise each other, I think. Anyway, I'm happy to come back. Thanks for having me on. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Okay. We certainly appreciate it when the interview is as insightful and thought-provoking as you've been this evening, man. Much appreciated. Tune in next time when we meet with a former Trump supporter who sits down to discuss Donald J., the politics of power, and the upcoming election. See you there. You have been listening to The Thoroughly Wrong Project with your hosts, Francisco and Robert. If you enjoyed today's show, like, follow, leave a comment, and then look in the description where you'll find our website, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Until next time, thanks for listening. And just remember, never be afraid to be thoroughly wrong.